You might remember that a few weeks ago we looked at Acts chapter 19 together. And for the benefit of those who weren't here then, we met Paul in Ephesus. And we saw how he spent every day for two years in the hall of Tyrannus, reasoning and persuading people about the kingdom of God. And we noted that the Ephesian church evidently learned from Paul's example and from his teaching uh, and, uh, and carried on with that practice of working hard because they were commended by Jesus in Revelation for their hard work and their perseverance. And from all this, we drew some lessons about the value of hard work and perseverance, especially as we too try to extend the kingdom of God in our area. Well, about 10 years later, um, Paul had um, long since left Ephesus, and by this time he was uh, in Rome and he was under house arrest. But while he was there, he took the opportunity to write to this young church in Ephesus. And in this letter, he again picked up the theme of work and its importance in the kingdom of God. And he placed it in the context of God's creating, creative and redeeming work of the whole cosmos, a really big picture view. And, it's, uh, and, and into this picture, he showed how we have a part to play with God and partnering with his work. And it's this theme that I really want to try and pick up and look at this morning. So my main verse this morning is Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Um, but so we can see the verse in its context, I'm going to read you the first 10 verses of that chapter. So this is Ephesians chapter 2 and the first 10 verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So before we even start, let me just underscore one point that we've gone over many times, but I'll say it again. And that is that we do not work in order to gain salvation. We are not acceptable, made acceptable to God because of what we do. We are saved by grace, which is a gift from God and not a result of works. Our reconciliation with God is possible only because what God has done for us. We are his workmanship. What we do flows from who we are as a result of what he has done. Yeah? What we do flows from who we are as a result of what he has done. So before we go any further, what I want to just do briefly is look at what it is that he has done. Now, we've been looking at this morning already, um, but for some of you, this, this might be new, so I just want to go through it again. 
This passage tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, carrying out our own desires and living in disobedience to God. Now, God created us so that we could live in close and perfect relationship with him. He wanted us to experience his love and his goodness. And for a time, we, that is mankind, we did that. But then we chose that we would rather go our own way, do our own thing, live how we wanted to live. And so we broke relationship with God. And that's where all of us start our story, living lives that are separate from God. The Bible uses really strong language to describe our condition. It says that we were dead in our sins. That means we were cut off from the source of life. So even if we look alive from the outside, the reality is that the life has gone from us. Now we do our best to compensate. But on the inside, we know that something isn't right. There's some thirst that somehow we can't seem to satisfy. A longing perhaps for hope, for love, for purpose, something that will give us meaning. And it may be that we don't even know what that something is, and we don't know how to get it. And actually, what we're told in this passage is there's nothing we can do to get it. We're like a plant cut off at the root. Naturally speaking, we have no hope. But what we can't do, God can do and has done. And we're told there is a way out, not by our own efforts, but because God still loved us. He still loved those he had made. We read that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Now, Paul is addressing Christians here, so I just want to fill in a bit. He's referring to the fact that Jesus died on the cross, what we've been remembering this morning. There on the cross, he took on himself all the disobedience, all the hurt, all the pain, all the sin from all of those who from that day on would ask for his forgiveness. And he died with it. The whole rotten lot of it. He took it all to the grave with him and he left it there. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, a new creation, free from sin and death. And so Paul tells us here that those who ask him will be raised with him and made alive with him, restored to relationship with our Heavenly Father and seated in heavenly places. There is hope. And that hope is found in Christ Jesus and what he has graciously done for us. So if you're here this morning, you want to know more of that hope, you want to satisfy that thirst that is within you, you can be free from the things that bind you. This is for you. You can be remade to be the person you were meant to be. This could be you can be a part of what God is doing now. You can be a part of what he has planned for the future. So what I'm going to be talking about this morning is addressed to those that have received God's gift and have been remade, restored to life. But there is no reason for you to be excluded. This can be for you too. Okay, so let me remind you again of our verse for this morning. Verse Uh, 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So my first point this morning is that we were created for good works, and this means that work is good. We were made for work. Now I wonder what your initial reaction is to that. Think about it for a moment. What is it that you do? Maybe you're a teacher parent, a gardener, a student? What's your attitude to what you do? do? I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up, but if I did ask you to raise your hands, if the thought of work and the fact that you were made for it, does that, if that excited you, would you raise your hand? Really? 
So the way that Paul writes here clearly indicates that he sees the fact that we were created for good works to be something that's really positive. But I wonder whether that really resonates with us. My guess is that for many of us, work is something we feel we could happily do without. But the reality is that many of us spend much of our lives working. And I want to try and help you this morning see that this is actually a good thing. The activity of work is good. Now, I know not all the actual tasks we have to do are always good, and we'll touch on that later. But work itself is good. It's what we were made for. We are his workmanship created for good works. This was always God's plan for us. And to see that, we're going to go right back to the beginning. We're going to go right back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first thing that we read in the Bible is that God worked. For the next 27 verses, we read a description of God at work, creating the earth and all that's in it. He made the land and the sea and the plants and the sun and the stars and the fish and the animals. He made man. So God was a visionary, a mathematician, a biologist, an engineer, a designer, an artist. He planned, he crafted, he created, he worked. And on the seventh day, we're told that God finished all the work that he had done. And he looked at what he had made and he saw that it was very good. God sat back and he took pleasure in what he had worked to achieve. And to be fair, it was pretty amazing. But I hope that as you imagine God sitting there looking at his creation, as, he, as you imagine him sitting looking at the first sunset, as he, as he saw the deers running through the trees, he looked at the brightly colored tropical fish swarming around the reefs, and you imagine the great contentment he must have felt, the satisfaction of a job well done. I hope that as you imagine that, you have some sense of identification, some sense of understanding what it was that he felt. Maybe you've experienced something of this when you've tidied a room or given a presentation at a seminar, baked a cake, completed an essay, prepared a set of accounts. In some of these things, I hope that you've known something of the pleasure of a job well done. Have you? I hope so. You should, because you are made in the image of a God who looked at his work and took pleasure in it. It's right and proper that we too, as his image bearers, should take pleasure in our work. It's what we were made to do. At the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, God created Adam and Eve, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. He gave them dominion over all that he had made. And in the second chapter of, of, of Genesis, we're told that God put them in the garden. He told them to nurture it, to look after it. Man was given a role, and it was a good role. Actually, it was an amazing role. Listen to the language of Genesis. God says to man, I want you to rule. That's the, another way of translating the Hebrew word for have dominion. We were made to be kings and queens, to rule over God's kingdom in his newly created earth. We were made to be partners with God in nurturing the world that he had made, establishing society in it, to continue his work of creation in creating communities, in creating culture to build the kingdom. This is the work that God prepared beforehand that we should do. It was work, but wouldn't you like work like that? Doesn't it sound good? Can't you imagine that would have been really fulfilling? But when you think back to one of those occasions when you felt a deep sense of satisfaction in a job that you did, this is how work was meant to be. 
It might be challenging, it might be hard work, it might take a long time, take a lot of effort, but it was rewarded with a great sense of accomplishment. This is work as God intended, and it's a part of what we were made for. We were created for good works. And I wanted to start there in the middle of the verse because I wanted to try and start with a positive image of what I mean when I'm talking about work. We're going to go back now to the beginning of the verse, and there it says, we are God's workmanship. So that's our second point. We are God's workmanship. We've already seen that we are created by God, and that in itself is incredible. If you, if you just sort of think a bit about the biological processes that go on inside our bodies, uh, you'll see they're staggering in their complexity. Life in all its forms is a marvel. So even a general level, the fact that we were made by God is amazing. But I think what we read here in Ephesians takes it to another level. So it doesn't just say we were made by God. It says we are God's workmanship. Now, you might not have cause to know this, but you can get a second-hand, you can, well, a new violin, in fact, um, a mass-produced one, uh, for £50, I've looked it up. But do you know what you'd have to pay for a violin made by a master craftsman? You might be able to take a guess, but I'll tell you. A few years ago, there was a Stradivarius of a violin sold for £27 million. That's a lot of money for a violin, something made by a man. And you are not just a violin. You are a being made in the image of God, and you are crafted by God himself. What does that make you worth? You are not mass-produced. You're not an accident or a mistake. You are God's image-bearer, chosen, loved, and crafted by God. The thing is with violins, I'm told that if you're expert enough, you can tell one from another just by listening. They're all unique. But the same is true for us. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Each one of you was chosen individually. And you were crafted individually. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 139 about God's work in crafting each of us. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And this is so personal. And as it was true for David, so it was true for us. We were chosen and crafted individually. And you are priceless. You are worth enough for God himself to come and die for you. Now, for some of you here today, that might be all you need to hear this morning. If that resonates with you, I want you to hold on to that. Believe it. Let it shape you. God has chosen you. You are his craftsmanship, carefully, lovingly created, fearfully and wonderfully made. But the verse goes on to say then that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's our third point this morning. 
We were created for a purpose. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, Stradivarius didn't make his violin so they could be put in a bank vault, or even so they could be put in a museum and looked at. He crafted his violin so they could produce beautiful music, and so it is with us. God has crafted us for a reason. And the reason we're told here is that we could do the good works which he has prepared for us to do. Now, when you imagine when Stradivarius heard his violins being played, do you imagine he felt a thrill of pleasure? How much more do you imagine that God is delighted when we do the works that he crafted us to do? When we do what God has made us to do, it's an act of worship to our maker. And unlike a violin, we can enter into God's delight. Now, some of you... Um, perhaps the older ones will have seen um, the film Chariots of Fire. And I apologise, I don't have a more recent example. Maybe somebody can help me with that later. But anyway, in this film, um, it's a film about um, the story of Eric Liddell, a Scottish Olympian, a Christian, and a missionary to China. And there's a memorable line in that film where he says this. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run... I feel his pleasure. I think that's how work was meant to be. So as we do what God made us to be, we will feel his pleasure and we'll be satisfied and fulfilled. I think Eric Little understood that. For him to run to the best of his ability was as much an act of worship as was preaching the gospel in China. He was doing what he was made to do. Now violins, even handcrafted ones, they all do essentially the same thing. They're all instruments capable of producing a beautiful sound. But they all do it slightly differently. And so it was with us. We all have the same overall task. We were all made to rule in God's kingdom. We were all made to partner with God in his work here on the earth. But within that, we all have a unique role to play. And for God's work to be done really well, we all have to do the work for which we were made. Now, I do have to tread carefully here, because I know we can get really hung up on this. Now, Eric Liddell was clearly a talented runner, and he had a passion for China. I don't think that he had to spend a lot of time agonizing over what it was that he uh, was made for. But for most of us, it isn't so straightforward. We're not quite so sure what our talents are often. And we do agonize over what we should do. I do. I have done, and I probably will do. But we shouldn't. And nor should you. I shouldn't, nor should you. God promises if we commit our way to him, he will light our path. And we've got to hold on to that and learn to trust God in that. You'll remember the image of the body, many parts, each with its role to play, so the body can function well. But we do all have a part. And God will lead us where he wants us, if we'll be open to him and if we will ask him. So we should ask, and we should think, but we shouldn't stress over it. And just thinking about then the specific roles that we might have uh, to play, I just want to make a few brief and practical comments. First, I want to address those of you who feel that you maybe uh, are holding back uh, from something. Perhaps you do feel that you have a real talent for something, something you love to do, something that is a passion for you, but you're unsure as to whether it's right to pursue that. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to feel released. God has made us for a purpose. And it just might be that talent, that dream, that passion is God's desire for you to follow. 
So don't write it off. Be wise about it, pray about it, but seriously consider whether you should go after that. Second, don't believe the world's lie that you can be whatever you want to be. You can't. But you can be whatever God made you to be, and that's what matters. Third, when I talk about talent or gifting, I don't mean that you're the best at whatever that thing is, or even that you're very good at it. When Jesus told the story about the, uh, the talents, you'll remember um, that to one person he gave three talents, to another two, and to another just one. See, it wasn't the amount of talents that they received that was a thing of significance in that parable. It's what they did with what they had been given. So if you are the best at something, that's great. Go for it. Use it for the very best you can. But if you're not the best, that's still great. Use what God has given you and use that to the best of your ability. And God will be delighted in what you do and um, it will bring honour to him. Fourth, and this is particularly for those of you that are younger and have a working life ahead of you, you are probably going to have to earn a living and there's nothing wrong with that. Indeed, Paul says if you don't work, you shouldn't expect to eat. It's right that we work to support our families. It's right that we work to generate the means so we can help others. But Jesus also tells us not to worry about what we will eat or what we will wear. Our Father knows what we will need. So I would say, and you need to prayerfully consider this for yourselves, but I would say don't make money the primary motivator or goal when you're thinking about what to do. If you feel that God is calling you to an area of work, but it doesn't pay as well as something else that you could perhaps do, think hard before following the money. And if that's something you're wrestling with, I would encourage you to pray it through and talk it through with a Christian you trust. Fifth, I've been deliberately ambiguous in my definition of what constitutes work, and that's something we will come back to shortly. But for the moment, I just want you to consider something that Jesus said. He told us that we were to be salt and light in the world. Well, how does salt work? Well, it, comes, it works by coming into contact with the thing that is either it's preserving or it's enhancing in flavour. What about light? Does it do any good if it's covered over with something? Well, no, it doesn't. It has to be amongst that which it is um, illuminating. If we're to be salt and light in our society, we have to be in society. That means that we have to be doctors, cleaners, parents, teachers, politicians, school governors, even, in exceptional circumstances, accountants. Now, for many of us, we're just going to influence those immediately around us. But some will have much greater influence. Some Christians will become prominent leaders in their fields. And if you feel that's something God has given you the gifting for, then go for it. We need people in all places in society. But if you don't feel you have that degree of talent, just go for it anyway. We need people everywhere, at all levels of society. And we all need to do what we can do if we're going to make a difference. Finally, we need to recognise that we are not living in the world as it was in Genesis chapter 2. In other words, even if we do a job that we love, there are going to be times when it's just going to be hard. The reality is that we aren't all going to do work that we love. And that's my first, fourth point then, that is that work has been marred. Sadly, we have to move from Genesis chapter 2 into Genesis chapter 3, and you know the story. Of all the things that Adam and Eve had the freedom to do, they did the one thing that God had forbidden. And we know that in that moment, man was separated from God. That beautiful relationship 
that he'd enjoyed was broken. The next thing we read that he's running from God and hiding from him. But while this was the most fundamental of the consequences of Adam's um, action, it wasn't the only one. See, what they did didn't just affect them and their relationship with God. It affected the whole of creation, and it affected man's relationship with that creation. Now, I don't understand the mechanics of how that works, but I just want you to consider this, which I thought was interesting. Adam and Eve were made to rule. They were commanded to have dominion over creation. There was a hierarchy. There was God, and there was man, and there was creation. But then what happens? A snake. One of the subjects of the kingdom that Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over. This snake comes in and it says um, that the, the words of God can't be trusted. And they listen to the snake. You see, they allow themselves to believe that the words of the snake were more trustworthy than the words of their God. So rather than taking authority over the snake and telling it just where to go, they subjected themselves to its authority. And the whole created order was upended. Man lost his place as the ruler over creation. And creation itself became subject to decay. See, like ripples in a pond, the consequences of that one action spread to all of creation, every corner of it, corrupting, distorting, perverting, and spoiling. And specifically for our message today, it had devastating consequences for man's relationship to his work, both in terms of work itself and in terms of the fruit of his labour. See, now thorns and thistles grow, and work becomes a labour. Verse 19 of chapter 3 says that by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. But I want you to notice that it wasn't work itself that was a consequence of the fall, rather the fact that work has lost its pleasure and its reward. It becomes difficult. Rather than working with creation now, there is a constant battle against it. There are pests and diseases and weather to contend with. And if you're not a gardener, you can add your own list of obstacles and trials. And what is achieved through work is now less than perfect. The satisfaction isn't always there. And sometimes uh, the work that we have to do is tedious and it's thankless and it just seems like drudgery. And sadly for many of us, at least some of the time, this is more like work as we know it. And I don't need to dwell on this stage of the story because we're very familiar with all of this and its struggles and its hardships. So we're going to press straight on now from Genesis chapter 3 right through to the New Testament. And there we read of Christ's redemptive work through his death and salvation um, on the cross. And we're going to see what that means for work. So it's my fifth and last point, that Jesus came to redeem all things, and that includes work. Now, it's possible that, as I've been speaking, that for some of you, there's been a question niggling in the back of your mind. A question along the lines of, aren't you taking this verse out of context here? You're talking about work in the context of Eden. You're talking about the mandate given by God to Adam and Eve to build society, to produce food, to cultivate and care for creation, to continue God's creative work in, uh, by creating culture. But here in Ephesians, Paul is addressing Christians. He's talking about salvation. And in this verse, he's talking about our recreation in Christ. So surely when we talk of us um, being God's workmanship, it's referring to his work in remaking us. And when it talks of the works he's given us to do, surely it's referring to the specific works that we as Christians have been made to do. Can we really draw those two things together like this? And it's a good question. 
You see, fallen man is still God's workmanship in terms of his creation. Fallen man can still, to a limited and imperfect degree, carry out the creation mandate, the work that was given to Adam and Eve. And clearly, it isn't fallen man that is being addressed here. Only Christians have been remade in Christ. And there are works that only Christians can do. But one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples was that they were to go and make uh, disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that he had commanded them. Elsewhere, we're told that we're to pray for the sick, cast out demons, care for the orphans and widows, be hospitable, all sorts of things. Here within the body, we all have a role to play so the body remains healthy and grows and multiplies. We have a work to do in society to be salt and light. This is all part of the mandate that we have been given as Christians. But, and this is the important point, this is in addition to the mandate we are given in creation, not instead of. I would argue for the Christian, this verse is equally applicable in both of its senses. It is both and, not either or. What God did at creation was good, very good. And his solution to man's rebellion in chapter 3 of Genesis wasn't to destroy all that is made, to, to wipe the slate clean. His solution was to redeem it, to restore it, to make it new. So I believe that sometimes when we think of God's uh, Christ's redeeming work on the cross, we take too narrow a view. When I spoke about salvation at the beginning of my message today, I talked about our separation from God and the fact that through Christ's work we can be restored to relationship with him. And of course this is right at the heart of the gospel message, but it is not the whole story. You see, Adam's sin did more than just break relationship with God. It impacted on all that God had made. Romans 8 tells us that creation itself was subjected to futility. And we've already spoken of the curse on the land, of thorns, of thistles, of disease and death. And when Jesus, who was the second Adam, died and rose again, he was starting to undo all the effects of Adam's first sin. Not just the broken relationship with God, but the impact it had on all of creation. Romans 8 again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Ephesians 1 tells us, tells us of Christ's redemptive plan to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, to restore all creation under the authority of Christ. See, God's plan through Christ to redeem uh, what he, uh, God's plan through Christ is to redeem all that He had made, to make it all new. When Adam sinned, God didn't go back to the drawing board and come up with a new plan. Now Satan would like to think he had that kind of power to change God's plans. He hasn't. We're still with Plan A. What God did and made was good, and when Jesus came, He started the work of restoring what was done in the first place—a work that will be completed when He comes again, and all things are made new. But for now, and the point of this is this: that part of that restoration of all things included restoring to us what we were originally meant to be and to do. We were made to have dominion, to rule over creation, and we are being restored to that position. So, remember in our passage, we read. We have been made alive with Christ and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. And where is Christ? And that's not a rhetorical question. Where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. You're right. 
and he's reigning. And where are we? Again, you can answer me. We're seated with him. And what are we doing? We're reigning. You see, here uh, in Timothy, um, and Paul, uh, in, in his letter to Timothy, Paul tells us we will reign with Christ. And here in Ephesians, we're told we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So you see there's an element of it's done, but we're not quite there yet. But you get the point. We are being restored to the position and role that Adam once had. But now we have an even bigger mandate than even Adam had. Not only are we to do what Adam was supposed to do, we are also partnering with Christ in undoing that which Satan has done. We are part of God's plan to bring restoration and reconciliation on the earth. Even creation, we are told, is on tiptoe waiting to see this happen. This is our calling. This is the work we have been created in Christ Jesus to do. One day, Christ will make all things new and will unite everything together in himself. We will be with him forever in his amazing new kingdom. But guess what? We will still have work to do. We will reign with him. And I'm not going to speculate as to exactly what that's going to involve, but you can be sure that it involves more than just sitting in a carriage and waving out of the window. As kings and queens on this earth, we will have work to do, so shouldn't we start practicing? I'm serious. I know this is hard for us to grasp, but this is what the Bible teaches us. You know, in Corinthians, Paul rebuked the church there because they were outsourcing their disputes to the secular courts. And Paul told them, look, one day you're going to judge angels. So hadn't you better get your act together and start practicing now in the small things? There is a continuity between who we are now and who we are now includes what we do, what we've learned, the character we've developed, and all of these kind of things. There's a continuity between this and who we will be on the new earth. Yes, we'll be perfected in Christ, but we aren't going to be made different people. So whatever it is that you do, whether you're an artist, a grandparent, a nurse, a cake maker, a teacher, a carer, a cleaner, do whatever it is that you do to the best of your ability, to the glory of God, knowing that what you do matters. Your work matters. It matters for now, and it matters for eternity. It's a part of what you were made for. It is part of God's plan for you. You are God's craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God himself prepared that you should walk in them.